So now we're going to have our Bible reading. If you've got one of the red Bibles, it's on page 1065, and we're in the Gospel of John and chapter 2, and starting at verse 13. So it's John chapter 2, verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves and others sitting at tables, exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all, of the, all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those he sold, who sold doves, he said, get these out of here, stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Thanks, Emily's, for leading the first part of our service. Keep those Bibles open in front of you. You're going to need them as we work through today. When you're thinking about this question, are you ready for Jesus to clear out your heart and to draw near to him? In John's Gospel, there's a lot written about signs. If you were here last week, uh, you'd have heard Simon open up the passage where Jesus turned water into wine. And verse 11, just before Emily wrote, said, What Jesus did here in Canaan of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. And then today, when Jesus cleared out the temple and overturned the tables and drove out the animals, the first thing the Jewish authorities said to him was, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And then towards the end of the passage, verse 23, it says, now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. Many, many signs that John offers. In fact, right at the back of his gospel, when he's explaining why he wrote what he wrote, he says these words. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. In the world around us, signs don't always do the job they're intended to do. I don't know if any of you have seen these road signs. I think most of them are from America. Uh, here's the first one. Uh, it's a good try, uh, but it's certainly not doing quite the job it's intended to do. It's just plain wrong. Or how about this sign? I don't think they meant this. Don't let worries kill you. Let the church help. Um, you can kind of see what they were aiming at, uh, but they missed by a mile. How about this one? Now that, that is something of a disaster, isn't it? 
I like the fact the guy at the front, I don't know how clearly you can see him, is there scratching his head, because I just don't know how you begin to put that right, probably without retarmacking the road. And it just doesn't say what it's meant to say. Or this one, which just seems slightly pointless. Please don't throw stones at this sign. Thank you. I, I, I can just immediately see a solution to that problem. I mean, I, I know I'm a kind of leader and forward thinker, but there seems to be an obvious solution to not throw stones at that sign. Or this one, which just seems to exaggerate, I think. Uh, no, trespassing. No trespassing. Violators will be shot. Survivors will be shot again. There we are. So only in America. But there we are. Uh, exaggerating to make a point. And lastly, this one. To be honest with you, that looks like me trying to follow the sat-nav. Uh, and I like the fact that underneath they've just written, good luck, because I think anyone trying to figure their way around that is going to need it. None of these signs do what they're meant to do. This one is clear, caution low-flying aircraft. I'm slightly concerned by the top of the sign. Uh, but not only that, what are you meant to do? You know, it's one thing to know they're a low flight. What are you supposed to do, duck? Do you know what I mean? Instead of seeing one coming, just lie on the floor until it passes by. All of these signs, they're meant to do a job, but they fail completely, don't they? They don't do what they're intended to do. Some are wrong, some exaggerate, some point it's in the wrong direction, some it's just not clear what you're meant to do, and if you do understand what they're about, it's thoroughly confusing. Here's the thing about John's Gospel. When he says there are signs in here, he's talking about the evidence that points us to the fact that Jesus was the Messiah, the long-awaited King of Israel, that he was really the Son of God, and that by believing in him, we can have life in his name. All of that evidence was needed, because if you'd seen Jesus, he looked totally ordinary. He was from a normal family. He worked on a building site most of his life. He would have probably had developed muscles because he would work with heavy materials all day long. And John said, that's the king. That's the greatest king who's ever lived. And if you'd seen him, it wouldn't be like the pictures we see of Jesus in films or in art where he's either handsome or got a halo, sort of glows in the dark. You know, that would be sort of obvious. Jesus was unusual. But if you'd have seen him here this morning, you wouldn't be able to pick out which one of the blokes he was. Looked totally normal. And so John presents evidence to say he was so much more than just a normal human being. He was really the son of God. And then he wants us to know what to do. That if we believe he's the king, the king of kings and lord of lords. If we believe he's the son of God, then what are we to do? Well, by believing we're to have life in his name. And so what we're going to see today is an unusual sign. Because for three years, no one gets it. No one really understands the full extent of what Jesus means here. For three years, this sign is just hanging like a truth bomb in the hearts of the disciples waiting to explode. And they realize after Jesus rises from the dead what it means. Here's the thing for us here this morning. Here's the thing. You cannot really know God except through the cross of Jesus Christ and his empty tomb. You can see miracles, you can have incredible experiences, but unless you come to God through the cross of Jesus Christ and through his empty tomb, you will never know God. You will never know Jesus as your king, you will never know him as your God, you will never have life in his name until you come to the cross. 
and lay down your life there until you come to the empty tomb and receive his resurrection power for yourself. So let's look at this together because it's early on in Jesus' ministry. And the three things I want us to think about today are these. What does it mean for Jesus to clear us out, clear out the sin from our lives? What does it mean for us to rise up in his resurrection power? And what does it mean for us to draw near to him? So let's look at these three things together. That first one there, clearing out. Let's look at these verses again. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the capital city. Passover was the main celebration of the year, like Christmas in our culture is, where families tend to get together, where people celebrate. Passover was the event. And if you saw the Queen's Jubilee, in fact, some of you went up to London. Uh, Jerusalem was a bit like that at Passover time. Generally, it was quite a small city, not that crowded. Passover time, more than two million extra people came into the city to celebrate. It was absolutely rammed. And do you remember me saying that John expects us to know our Old Testament really well and Matthew, Mark, Luke really well? Well, he expects us to know that Jesus went to Passover every single year of his life. Luke tells us that every year Jesus went with his family. It was probably something he'd look forward to, but also he knew what he was walking into. He knew what had gone wrong in the Jewish religion at that time in the temple. This wasn't a shock or a surprise to him. He'd seen it every single year of his life. So when he got there, the same as it always was, in the temple courts he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. It wasn't wrong for them to be selling animals. Part of the Jewish religion in the temple is that people came with an animal and they offered it as a sacrifice for their sin. So the animal died instead of them. They needed an animal to worship God in the way they'd been told. What was wrong was that this was happening inside the temple. The temple was meant to be a place for prayer. It was a place for people to come and worship God. Buy the animal before you get in there. But they didn't. Do you know why? Because the temple authorities, the leaders, those who were supposed to be helping people worship God, had franchised the animals that could be sold in the temple. So you bought a space to sell your animals, which were temple approved. And for people to buy them, you couldn't just reach into your pocket and pull out your cash. You had to go to a money changer who would then charge you an incredible rate of interest to hand over your local money and be given temple money. And so people were being ripped off doubly inside the temple, coming with a desire to worship God and being blocked at every turn, ripped off by greedy people who were more interested in money than the worship of the living God. And Jesus had seen it probably 30 times already, every year of his life. So why now? Why does he suddenly take action? Do you know? Well, it's because of what we read last week with Simon. It's because he was revealing himself now to his disciples. He was proving to people he wasn't just an ordinary bloke. He wasn't just the carpenter from Nazareth. He was the king of kings coming to put things right in this world and was going to begin in the temple in Jerusalem. So when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, that great celebration, 
Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip. He made a whip. You see, this wasn't a loss of temper. He didn't just get angry and lose his cool. He made a whip. This was calculated. He knew what he was going to do. And he was angry. Do you know, last week a survey came out about British attitudes towards Christianity. I don't know if any of you have seen. If you're interested, I'll give you a copy. In there are words to describe Jesus. Here's the top four. This isn't to do with people who go to church or people who don't. It's just in general. What do British people think about the Christian faith? And more simply, what do they think about Jesus? Top four words to describe Jesus. Spiritual was number one. Two, peaceful. Joint third, leader and loving. Do you know what nobody said about Jesus? Angry. Not one person described Jesus as angry. And yet when you come to this passage, that is the overriding emotion here. Not of a loss of temper, but of anger at what he saw in front of him. Why was he so angry? People are being ripped off. But there's more. He made a whip out of cords and he drove all the te- from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers, overturned their tables. To those who served doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning what? My father's house into a market. That was the big deal for Jesus. This was his father's house, the place where God had chosen to dwell by his spirit, the place where heaven touched earth and they turned it into a market. My father's house. He'd known that all of his life. When he was 12 years old, he got lost. And his mom couldn't find him, or his dad, 12. And they came back, and he was in the temple teaching. And his statement to his mom and dad was this, at 12. Didn't you realize I'd be in my father's house? <laughs> they didn't, but he knew. You know, in this survey... of British people describe themselves as Christians. 48%. of all those surveyed believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Can I just say this as kindly as I can? You can't be a Christian without believing Jesus is the Son of God. It is absolutely essential. It's not something that was imposed on his life later by his disciples. Look at what he's yelling as he runs out the beginning of his ministry. This is my father's house. I'm the son of God. And his disciples realize when the Messiah comes, when the king of kings comes into this world, this is exactly the sort of thing he should be doing. Sorting out corrupt religion, making it easier for people to worship the living God in spirit and truth. And so they realized this verse here. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. I love the word there for consume. It means will eat me up. He was eaten up with a desire to put things right. It was a mark the Messiah had come. 
first thing for us here this morning. Does Jesus still get angry today? What do you think? Going to refresh this week, that's question one. Does Jesus still get angry today? Well, yes. Do you know what with? With sin and with us at times too. With the things that we do that are obstacles to others coming to him. Jesus, meek and mild, said it'd be better to have a millstone thrown around your neck than stop any of the beautiful children in this church coming to know him. That's how seriously he takes our witness, our welcome to the children. But it's in our hearts and our lives. Jesus will never make peace with sin. It will never be okay to him. He will never overlook it or excuse it like we do every single day of our lives. Do you know why? Because your sin to him has the stink of death on it. And so does mine. You ever smell rotting flesh? Do you ever think? I have once. When I finished uni, I got a cleaning job up at Goldney Hall in Clifton where the posh students live. Posh students can afford to waste a lot of stuff. I kitted my entire flat out with what they left behind. But unfortunately, they turned off the electricity in every block to save money. And so my mate and I had to, first of all, clean out all the fridges. They had been off in the heat for weeks. One of them I still remember opening, and in it were pork chops. Or what remains of pork chops. Now, occasionally, I've taken the mickey out of my boys for wearing links. But there was something worse than that back in that day. It was a thing called denim. If you had denim aftershave, which I did, you were really in trouble. And uh, the smell of this meat was so bad. Literally, my best mate Simon and I went and got bandanas, emptied about half a bottle of denim aftershave onto these bandanas, went like that. And that was the only way we could get near enough to this stinking meat to get it in the bin and out. Jesus will never, ever, ever make peace with your sin and mine. He's gentle. He's kind. He's patient. He does bide his time with us. He's gracious. But don't be mistaking any of that for the fact that he will tolerate your sin or mine. He hates it because of the damage that it does to us, the damage that it does to others, and the damage it does to the reputation of God Almighty. Can I say as well in this passage, the particular sin in view again is greed. I have never met anybody who thought they were greedy. Have you? It's almost a joke, isn't it? The story of Mr. Greedy just seems to be so ridiculous. Do you remember him, that Mr. Man? But the Bible makes a very different assumption. It assumes that fallen, sinful human beings are by nature greedy. Does that upset you? Does that bother you? It should do both. You should be deeply upset 
that you might be a greedy person and unaware of it. And so should I. When we pray, we should begin with the assumption, I am greedy. Lord, help me to become more like Jesus. That's point one here, clearing out our hearts from that sin that indwells that Jesus will never make peace with, but rising up. You see, it's not just Jesus' disciples who realize he's acting as the Messiah would when he comes. The authorities responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? They could have arrested him. The laws were all in place. Jesus' ministry could have lasted about five minutes. The authorities could have come up. The Romans actually executed people for desecration of temples across the empire. It was a way of keeping things steady. So the laws were all in place. And three years later, when Jesus did this again, they did arrest him. End of the week, under the cover of darkness. At this point, though, he was an unknown. Nobody knew who he was. He wasn't a threat to the Jewish authorities this time because who was he? Who is this bloke who's running around with a whip, who's yelling at the top of his voice about his father's house? We've never seen him before. So they don't arrest him. Do you see that? They say, what sign will you show us? What miracle will you do to prove you can mess up the temple in the way that you just have? To prove you really have the authority, that you're the man. What would you expect Jesus to do next? Taking 10 blind people, a group of people who couldn't walk, people with other problems and disabilities. He worked miracle after miracle after miracle to prove to them, yeah, I have the authority. Deal with it. But he doesn't, does he? What does he do is he says something that's a complete riddle and mystery to them. He says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. They don't have a clue what he's talking about. They just take it literally. They look around the magnificent building. I don't know why I'm pointing at this building. This is not particularly magnificent. But if you imagine this about a million times more magnificent, then you'll be close to where the temple was. It was huge. And in fact, to that point, it had taken 46 years to build, and it still wasn't finished. They didn't finish that building until 63 AD, seven years, ironically, before the Romans burnt it down. But... 46 years of building. I turned 49 this week. So pretty much most of my lifetime have been spent building this magnificent building. And Jesus goes, three days, erase it, and I'll rebuild it. I'll get it done. And they look at him as if he's lost his mind, which is exactly how it sounded. It's taken 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it in three days? They couldn't understand what he was talking about. But he's witnessing, do you remember, to whom? His disciples. And he plants a seed of truth in their hearts three years before it's going to do anything. He just pushes it in there early on in the ministry. Destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it. Do you remember at Jesus' trial, this bit gets quoted they say, he said, I'm going to destroy the temple. Jesus never did. Jesus said, you destroy this temple and I'll raise in three days. But it is trial, they quote this. But even then, they don't get it. It says here, but the, body had spoke, the temple he had spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words Jesus had spoken. 
You see, he was getting them ready already, right at the start of his ministry, for the fact that his body was going to be destroyed. But that wouldn't be the end of the story. Three days later, he would rise from the dead, just as he said. One of the things I think is amazing is Jesus didn't say, I am the temple. If you know John's gospel, you know seven times Jesus says, I am the good shepherd of the sheep, or I am the vine, or I am the living bread. Not I am the temple. You see, the way Jesus became the temple was not simply to declare it, but to go to the cross and die there for our sin, for that stench of death that fell on him. His flesh was torn to pieces for you and for me and for the sin of the world. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he died for that sin so that we might be forgiven. So that endless succession of sacrifices and animals that came into the temple might come to an end. It is finished because one final perfect sacrifice for sin was made. Jesus, brothers and sisters, died for you and for me. He died for all those times in my life when I'm greedy. All those times in my life when I'm unrighteously angry. All those times in my life when I'm consumed with lust and hate. All those times in my life when I'm too lazy to do the right thing. He went there for me. And he went there for you. Some of you here this morning haven't taken that first step yet of obedience and faith. He went there for you. He went there so you can be forgiven. He went there so your sin doesn't have to count against your account, but against his. He went there for you. And he didn't stay dead. Just as he said, he rose up three days later and conquered sin and death and hell itself for anyone who would trust in him. That's what he did. He rose up. And for all of us, that is a way of life, not just a one-off event. If you're here today thinking, yeah, I became a Christian 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, but it's not become the pattern of your life, can I say kindly, you probably don't know him. You probably don't know him. You are fooling yourself. Don't count a baptism. Don't count a moment. Count a lifestyle that says, in my heart of hearts, Lord, I come to you daily to die to myself and be raised up in living resurrection power. We need it every day. Lord, how I need you. Every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness, oh Lord, how I need you. If you think you've moved beyond that, you've never come through the door. You can be here every single week and not know him. People are going in and out of the temple in Jerusalem, untouched by the power of God. But let me tell you, that power is at work in this place here this morning. And however far you may have wandered, however far you may have gone, because of the cross, there's a welcome home for you, a way back. But you need to take it. What does it gain a man if he gets the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Nothing. Yet here this morning, Jesus offers you eternal life. And in that place, 
There were people who were up for it. It says so there at the end, you see? Now, while he was in Jerusalem, at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing. So he did do miracles. Like Emily said at the beginning of this morning's service, there are loads of things that he did that aren't written down here. They saw them, and they believed in his name. Well, that sounds good, doesn't it? But it wasn't life-changing, saving faith. You can see the most amazing miracles, brothers and sisters, and it won't necessarily change your heart one moment. My first year at uni, when I was 18, I met a girl called Brooke. She was from America, and uh, she was one of the hardest atheists I'd ever met. And then one day I was chatting to her, and I said, well, I said, well, talk to me a bit about your life. She said, well, I've seen some pretty amazing things. Now. I said, well, like what? She said, my granddad was a rancher. And one day he was kicked in the back by a ball, and it shattered his spine. He never walked again. And then one day he came to church, like we see here this morning, and he was in a wheelchair. And the preacher stopped what he was doing. Pointed to her granddad and said, the Lord has just healed you. Get up and walk. The guy got out of his wheelchair and he walked. And here was my friend Brooke's explanation. There are plenty of things in this world we can't understand and can't explain. That doesn't mean it was God. You see, miracles in themselves don't save anyone. Plenty of people saw Jesus' miracles, but he knew they wouldn't walk with him all the way to the cross. Look what it says here. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. He could see that they wanted the blessings, but they wouldn't want him. When it came to him going to the cross, they wouldn't want to go that way. They wanted the good stuff he could offer them, the miracles, the wishes. They didn't want him. They didn't want a path of sacrifice and of service. They just wanted the blessings. You know, for about a year that carried on in Jesus' ministry. And to a point where the crowd started following him. And one day he went out to a hillside and about 20,000 people, about the same as would be at the gate on a normal Saturday, came and they, they surrounded him. And Jesus tore them from a boat. And they were tired and they had no food. And to Andrew, do you remember him? He brought a little boy with five loaves and two fish. And Jesus gave thanks and he broke the bread and he distributed did the same with the fish. And everyone ate and everyone had more than enough. There were 12 leftover baskets. Everyone could see his power. Do you know what Jesus did next? He began to teach them about the way of the cross. And he put it in shocking terms that they couldn't understand. You've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood, Jesus said. And this huge crowd who love watching the miracles, do you know what they did? Well, those guys would no longer draw near. They literally just walked away. In John's gospel, it says these words. The words I've spoken to you, they are full of the spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I've told you no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. And from this time on, many of his disciples turned back and they no longer followed him. Thousands. But like this morning, we're to put this into proportions. That basically everybody leaves and you decide we're never coming back to that church 
three or four of you remain. Three or four. Everyone else just says, if that's what Jesus wants from me, I don't want to walk that way with him. You know, some of you are here this morning and you've come to this faith through the hardest path. Some of you here today on Father's Day, tough day. Some of you here because children were lost. Some of you here because life has just broken you into pieces. Some of you have been through experiences you never would have chosen. Let me tell you this. It's only when life goes the opposite of what you want that you can really see what your faith in Jesus Christ is worth to you. It's only when life goes the opposite way. Because in that moment, you face a choice like those people did. Yes, Jesus, I will walk with you. Or no, Jesus, I will not. If you don't sort out my problems, if you don't fix this mess, I want nothing else to do with you. Or you say this, I don't understand, Jesus, what you are doing. I don't understand your words or your promises or how they apply to my life right now. Because my life is a mess. But I trust you. And I love you. Because you went to the cross for me. And you conquered sin and death and hell for me. At the moment, a friend of mine is very sick. And I'm finding it very hard. It's a guy called Mike Kane. Some of you know Mike. Some of you have heard of him. He's a pastor here in Bristol. And he is very sick. I don't understand Mike is, in my opinion, the best preacher of my generation. He was booked to do some big conferences this summer, can't do any of them. He teaches internationally on how to preach. And he's also just a great friend. And cancer is destroying his body. I sent him the next words in John's Gospel, chapter 6, to him, because Jesus opened the door to Mike and to everyone and says, do you want to leave too? Do you want to leave too, Jesus asked the 12. Peter said to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and to know that you're the Holy One of God. I sent those words to Mike to try to encourage him. Here's what he sent back. Nowhere else for me to go. Nowhere else to turn to. Why would I try to wriggle free from the one who has my life safe in his hands and will never let me go? Never. What about you? Is your life safe in Jesus' hands? Do you have confidence in the one who will never let you go? Have you ever invited him to clear your heart out of sin? Have you ever known that power of the resurrection in your own life? Not as a theory, but as a practice of the reality of God Almighty working in you and through you. Have you drawn near to Jesus even this morning? Is he your king? Is he your God? Do you have life?
in his name. Let me pray. Lord, this is huge. We don't want to get this wrong, Lord, because on it hangs eternity. If we turn our backs on you, Lord, where will we go? We'll go through this life without you and we'll go to eternity without you and we'll be lost, dead in the stink of our own sin forever. And yet you came as a rescuer and a redeemer to clear out our hearts, to give us resurrection power, to enable us to draw near. Oh Lord, I pray for any here this morning who don't yet know you. May this be the moment where they say, I believe in Jesus. I believe he is the son of God. I believe he died and rose again. I believe he paid for my sin. And I want to call him my Lord. And for those of us here, Lord, who take your name lightly upon our lips, upon our lips but live, live as if we don't know you. Lord, come into our hearts and clear them out that we might know more of your power, your light, your love in our hearts, in our lives. Lord, teach us to live for you. For we pray these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.